Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Rachel Myro and Fermina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the work of content moderation is a grim business. And not just because content moderators have to witness the worst of humanity on a daily basis, but because social media platforms like TikTok and Meta have offshored a lot of these thankless jobs to third-party contractors that offer poor pay and benefits. It's global capitalism read in tooth and claw again. We'll talk about it next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro and Fermina Kim. I'm going to start this conversation today with the words of a content moderator in Bogota, Colombia. You just have to, you have to just work like a computer. Don't say anything. Don't go to bed. Don't go to the restroom. Don't make a coffee. Nothing. That's from reporting by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. And that particular content moderator, Alvaro, reviews TikToks, though he's technically employed for a company called Teleformance. Third-party outsourcing has become common in content moderation, even as many Americans presume Silicon Valley's labor force is well-off, sipping lattes and wearing Patagonia vests while pulling all-nighters in gorgeous office buildings, or these days tropical beaches because of the pandemic. Let's burst that bubble, shall we? And a warning now that some of what we're talking about may be disturbing to listeners of any age. First, let's talk with Neem McIntyre, a reporter on the big tech team for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Her recent piece is Behind TikTok's Boom, a legion of traumatized $10 a day content moderators. Neem, thank you so much for joining us. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start with that title. Uh, You're telling us they're traumatized. What kind of trauma are we talking about? Yeah, so they the things that came up um, a lot in our interviews with workers um, were was the the psychological trauma um, associated with doing the job, um, which basically resulted from watching um, really quite horrific content. Um, we heard a lot about kind of extreme acts of gang violence, um, such as people kind of uh, removing the skin from a human face or setting someone on fire. It's all of these kind of horrible things, as well as um, we heard about child abuse, suicide. So basically just about every kind of horrible thing you could imagine um, TikTok workers will have to see it. Um, And then the sort of flip side of that was that they they felt the company was not providing them with adequate psychological support to deal with the the impact of those those images and those videos that they were seeing. 
Well, you know, uh, not that I'm necessarily taking the side of teleperformance, but but given the nature of the job, is there any kind of mental health care that can effectively offset that kind of trauma? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I don't necessarily have that answer, but I think there's certainly more that they could have done in terms of like the speed with which people were able to access support. So we heard from someone who um, did eventually manage to speak to a counsellor, but it took some months because of it had to have um, some various layers of sign off from managers. Um, and I think the workers we spoke to in general painted a picture of the support being fairly um, superficial um, but then I think there's other things you can do that n- not just necessarily in terms of the psychological support, support itself, but in terms of, you know, the volume of this kind of content that people are seeing or the, the amount of the way that you can space it out. So in TikTok, for example, in, in Colombia anyway, um, as we understand it, that they sort of divide their their content into three streams and then the people who work on the a stream called r1 they're working on the most traumatic stuff so they're basically seeing this stuff on like a very regular basis and so yeah i think um it's definitely a valid question as to you know how much psychological interventions could could prevent um prevent harm when the work is inherently so uh, traumatic, but there's definitely more that companies such as teleperformance could be doing. Well, so so describe the nature of the job for a, a content moderator in in Bogota. How much money do you make? Uh, you know, how, how does that compare yeah. with what you would make if you were working doing the same kind of uh, job in the United States? Sure. Yeah. So. Um, the most junior people um, who would just moderate um, in, in Spanish language content, um, their wages worked out at about uh, $10 a day. Um, and then people were paid slightly more if they could uh, do moderation in multiple different languages. Um, and obviously that is yeah, a, a tiny fraction of what you, even an, an entry level moderator would get paid in the US or the UK. I, I um I know in the UK the sort of starting salary would be about um twenty five thousand uh, pounds a year. Um, and uh, yeah, they're sort of um their working um shifts where they could be in the day, they could be through the night that this service needs to be provided 24-7 and they would work six days a week generally so that's you know not uh wouldn't you know wouldn't be usual for a content moderator in in the UK anyway um and there the other I think that you know the sort of traumatic aspect of the job is um fairly fairly well known but I think what is possibly less well known is that content moderators are like extremely surveilled and monitored while they're at work. Their performance is like constantly being assessed. Um, you know, their their break times are being very strictly 
measured and um, all of these metrics kind of feed into their their ultimate salary. There's quite a large portion of their salary, which is results based. So essentially, if you miss your target, you might miss out on, um, you know, up to a third of your total possible pay. So quite a quite a significant amount. Now, for the benefit of those who who uh, have been struggling in the last couple of minutes to, you know, uh, equate pounds to dollars, twenty five thousand pounds is around thirty thousand uh, U.S. dollars, which is to say, poverty wages. Uh, are are the are the people who are taking these jobs uh, typically taking them full time, or is it a hustle on the side? Uh, in Colombia. In Colombia, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, um, so people were doing them full time, but I think because yeah, it, it, we we did hear that this wage was very difficult to live on in Bogota. Um, so I, I, we spoke to a lot of um, students who were, you know, still living at home, so they may have had slightly lower like housing costs. Um, and that, yeah, that was definitely a, a large um, part of the the workforce. But um, it was it, it's it's required, like by teleperformance, that you do this full time and six days a week. So, um, but yeah, it it certainly is difficult to get by on that kind of salary in in Bogota. We were told. Uh, what what's the situation there for people who are trying to organize unions who are trying to you know uh collectively bargain for for better uh pay and better conditions yeah well that's actually um changed uh, a fair bit since we did the story which um I'll um yeah I guess I'll explain the the progression we when we were reporting um we heard that it was a very um, hostile workplace to try and organise. Um, there were a number of um, instances of hostility from management, including uh, the sort of most prominent one um, would be they they initiated a, a lawsuit against the union that was trying to organise um, workers uh, and including the content moderators. Um, and yeah, the company had, um, the, the company had not really been engaging, uh, with the negotiations and they, the union had been, uh, which is ultra claro, the Colombian union had been trying to organize for, uh, a couple of years, but since, um, our story came out and, um, the teleperformance has actually now signed a, global agreement with uni global which is a um global trade union federation and that will actually cover all of um all of its workers in in all every country it operates in and it basically just sort of um the, the most important thing is it will guarantee a kind of um you know the the its workers the the freedom to join a union and um collectively bargain um, and I which, should mention we've just got a couple of minutes going into the break, but but why yeah. did you decide to focus particularly on teleperformance? Um, I think we we basically had done some initial reporting um, and identified that 
there may have been uh, some issues within the company. But I guess also it it was one of the biggest players in the space. Uh, So it just, you know, it has content moderators all over the world. But interestingly, it's now said it's going to pull out of uh, the content moderation business when its contracts expire, um, which, yeah, you know, is not necessarily an outcome that we would have wanted to see. We would have, you know, liked them to have uh, addressed some of the concerns of workers rather than um, dumping the the contracts. So it'll be interesting to see who who takes that up. Um, but yeah, we we sort of focused on them as a as a big player in the space and one that some initial reporting found like that there were some issues there. Um, and, you know, we, we should mention that you did reach out to Teleperformance in your story and uh, with a series of, you know, details and, and they declined to respond. They uh, they did respond, um, but they, yeah, they... they Without they details. Uh, we're yeah, talking about sh- the current global landscape for content moderators and the content they interact with and the job psychological stressors with Neem McIntyre, reporter on the big tech team for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, author of the recent piece Behind TikTok's Boom, A Legion of Traumatized $10 a day content moderators. We want to hear from you. What are your reactions to what you're hearing? Uh, do you have experience as a content moderator? Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and we're talking about the current global landscape for content moderators, the types of content they interact with, horrible, 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 much of the time, boring, much of the rest of the time, uh, and also the the pay, the benefits, the situation, uh, which is not so good for people who are working for subcontractors of social media uh, companies. I, I want to give a big thanks to Neem McIntyre, a uh, reporter on the Big Tech team at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, and urge you all to read her recent piece, Behind TikTok's Boom, A Legion of Traumatized $10 a Day Content Moderators. Neem, very uh, grim reading, but I'm also glad that I did read it.
So I guess with that, we'll turn now to Sarah T. Roberts, faculty director of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry and author of Behind the Screen, Content Moderation in the Shadows of Social Media. Sarah, good to talk with you again. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So, you know, I, I, I take it you've been listening to all of this stuff. Hopefully you've had a chance to, to read McIntyre's reporting as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is what she described going on in Colombia largely the same situation elsewhere on the globe? Yeah, I wish I could tell you that it was not. But unfortunately, uh, <laughs> what was just described, we could really call the status quo in so many places around the world and for so many people who are working, as you pointed out, at uh, third-party contracting firms, but on behalf of the major social media uh, companies headquartered just south of of where where you sit today and from where we're broadcasting. Um, You know, just to reiterate, how is it different, um, say, working as a content moderator directly for a social media company, perhaps based here in the U.S., and working for a subcontractor? Well, it's always a difficult job, uh, no matter matter the circumstance, but the material conditions of the work uh, vary to a great degree, depending on... uh, where you're working, what part of the world you're working in, and what are what the nature of your employment is. And as we can ascertain from many other industries who learned this lesson well, uh, firms that outsource are not doing it just to find an appropriate labor pool. Um, they are doing so in order to find, frankly, the cheapest uh, labor uh, possible. And they are also seeking conditions in which those workers uh, will probably be due fewer benefits, again, reducing that bottom line where uh, labor laws may be much more lax than in the country of origin uh, and where conditions are wholly favorable for the company soliciting the labor, but not so much for the workers. So, uh, you know, just from a from a, a legal or regulatory standpoint, there could be a great difference between working in the U.S. or working in, say, Germany as a content moderator and working someplace like uh, like Colombia or like the Philippines, where much of this work is, is located. And what that translates into from the perspective of the firms is, uh, is a cost savings. Uh, but it comes at other kinds of costs, as we, as we just heard. I should mention, we reached out today to TikTok, Teleperformance, Google, Meta, Twitter, and Reddit to invite them onto the show, to invite comment from them. We we basically heard back from Reddit uh, with some boilerplate language. I'll read it now. At, at Reddit, our employees' well-being is a top priority, including offering a robust set of resources for content moderators. I, this sounds like what a lot of companies say in, in the, at this point, many articles detailing what's going on. What are your reactions, dear listeners, to what you're hearing? And do you have experience as a content moderator you can bring to this discussion? We would love to hear from you. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. And now that you've picked up your phone... (laughs) 866-733-6786. You can also email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. We are, of course, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. So join the conversation. Sarah, you know, going back to that boilerplate language, you know, it, it just seems uh, designed to 
I'm not sure what, protect against lawsuits? It's not protecting against lawsuits. There are lawsuits against many of these companies, if not all. Well, as as I'm sure you're aware, these uh, these companies are great equivocators and they're uh, highly adept at using uh, language like you heard uh, to make anodyne statements that, you know, can be interpreted in at, in many ways. So, sure, that may be the case for Reddit content moderators. But as we know, the industry uses this vast supply and vast network of third party outsourcing companies. And while. Uh, the firms themselves can mandate certain baseline conditions. Uh, the firms are out of sight and out of mind from where the actual work takes place. As Neve was indicating, the workers are subject to um, a, a workplace that is highly surveilled. They are subject to metrics that are uh, really hard to hit. And interestingly, uh, the companies have no problem collecting metrics on the workers' productivity and accuracy, but they're frequently uh, avoiding collecting other kinds of metrics, such as on the workers' well-being, which they could easily also collect and measure against those uh, uh, those numbers when it comes to productivity and, uh, and efficacy. They don't do it. They don't collect these data because they'd prefer not to know. And that's what allows them to make those kinds of blanket statements that are frankly um, silly on their face. Mistakes were made. Uh, we, we don't exactly know what... Uh, right. Uh, what? Because we're not really asking the tough questions. Um, you know, I, I guess one thing I want to ask, uh, you know, on behalf of those people who are thinking, why is this all being done around the globe? Uh, in part because, uh, you know, it's being done in countries that are cheaper uh, than uh, it would be in the U.S. to hire them. But but I also wonder, you know, Spanish in San Jose, for instance, San Jose, California, sounds different from the other San Jose, sounds different from Mexico City, Buenos Aires, Madrid. I, I've talked to researchers and human rights activists who argue that effective content moderation really has to be language and culture specific. Are, are they wrong? No, of course not. They're absolutely right. But before uh, before we think of that as the reason for why uh, the uh, the social media companies and their outsourcing partners locate where they do, uh, I would caution you that uh, to to think that that's uh, their their primary motivating uh, decision making factor. And the example I'll give is uh, some years ago, I was uh, invited to visit a site in Barcelona, Spain. Uh, for those listeners who don't know, the primary spoken language in Barcelona is Catalan. So it's not even Spanish, um, Castilian Spanish being very distinct and very different from Latin American Spanish. And as you mentioned, Latin American Spanish having uh, hundreds of varieties, uh, dialects and, and accents and, and regional differences. And I was very interested to find when I visited this uh, this content moderation center in Barcelona, that there were uh, many people of uh, Spanish origin moderating the content for places in Mexico, uh, for places in in South America, uh, where their version of Spanish wasn't necessarily the the local one anyway. Uh, When I pushed the the uh, providers of this uh, of this center uh, who were German in origin on why they had chosen Barcelona to locate their their site, uh, I couldn't get them to admit it. But of course, the reason they were in Spain in the first place was because Spain was in an economic crisis. And so all things came cheaper in Spain in the first place when we thought about European 
sites. So it's not as if um, those specificities about linguistic and cultural knowledge are the prime drive, driving factor. Of course, it, it matters to have coverage in uh, all of these uh, varieties of, of human self-expression that we find online, and it is important that people be represented. But I don't think we ought to trust these firms, whether it's at the the, the top soliciting level of the metas and Googles of the world, or, or whether it's at the uh, third-party uh, service providers who might promise, in this case, Spanish language uh, moderation, but, you know, <laughs> really in a mismatched sort of way. Michael comments, these are high-tech sweatshops. It's not surprising, in fact, expected. This is capitalism working as it's designed to work. Question for you, Sarah. Are there companies that set a higher standard in terms of how they treat content moderators, either, you know, a particular social media network or a particular third-party contractor? Well, I wish that I could think of a of a glowing example right off the top of my head. Uh, unfortunately, I think perhaps the opposite is true. Uh, TikTok is the is the company that was highlighted at the top of the show, and of course, it is a relatively new entrant on the scene of uh, social media platforms. It's wildly successful, but it is relatively new, and one would think that a firm sort of starting out in the space would look at the landscape and and pull from lessons learned in the past about uh, perhaps how to do things better or more humanely. Uh, but it seems that instead of doing that, the firms just decide to go back to the drawing board, reinvent the wheel, and come up with the worst possible circumstances over and over again. Well, Content moderation practices at these firms are treated as as uh, highly guarded industrial secrets anyway. So it's not like there's a lot of information sharing about best practices, although there is some uh, third party movement to try to bring that to the industry. Um, but instead, it's it's more like a race to the bottom rather than a, a, a design to improve. Are you hearing this story, listeners, about this race to the bottom about capitalism red and tooth and claw, spread by Silicon Valley companies right here in the San Francisco Bay Area and feeling infuriated, feeling like we're, we're not given uh, given these companies a fair break. What are your reactions to what you're hearing? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Uh, Greg asks, why can't GPT-3 and other forms of AI do content moderation? I guess, Sarah, it, it's not that they aren't doing content moderation. They are, but but it can only be a sort of AI-assisted situation. They they can't do it comprehensively, altogether, automated, as it were. Yeah, um, the biggest firms, of course, are using all sorts of uh, uh, computational assistive technologies to support this work, uh, be it machine learning algorithms, um, be it other kinds of AI tools, natural language processing, and others to help uh, sort and triage and sometimes make preliminary decisions about uh, about these these cases of uh, content, usually typically reported um, by other users, but sometimes proactively found. Uh, that having been said, um, if the firms could do it that way, they would. 
right? So uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, when all you have is a, a, a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if they could apply computational solutions to this writ large, they would. The, the fact of the matter is that uh, to date, human beings are much better at making the kinds of sophisticated nuanced decisions that it takes to uh, apply policy, legal mandates, and frankly, matters of taste to uh, these decisions. And they can do it all very quickly with all sorts of uh, informational sources that reside within them and inside the human brain. And that is just something that uh, a machine learning algorithm cannot uh, cannot compete with at this time. Uh, also, even if those tools were applied uh, more widely, or you know, if we were to flip a switch and suddenly go all to automation, let's remember that those tools are only as good as the uh, the input they receive. These are these are uh, abstractions when we're talking about algorithms and we're talking about AI and human beings are responsible for creating and programming, monitoring and, and evaluating uh, those tools anyway. So there really isn't a point at which uh, humans are not involved in these processes. And it would actually be disadvantageous in many cases uh, to remove them because humans are better decision makers and they're more nuanced. That having been said, uh, it is not a good situation to put people in front of this content day in and day out. Uh, but as we've indicated, there are so many things that could be done between the status quo where we are right now and what could be. Uh, you know, it's just interesting. When we say machine learning, we sort of forget that uh, the the adversaries, if you will, the individuals, uh, the the uh, actually nation states that are perpetrating a lot of this awful stuff, uh, they're learning too. And it's a it's a conversation right. between the AI and and these bad actors. So so you know if if uh, the AI or or a particular company's uh, content moderators figure out a certain strategy and are able right. to to defend against it, uh, well, new strategies pop up every day. You've got it, Rachel. I mean, this is a highly dynamic uh, circumstance and situation. Uh, the the situation on the ground is constantly changing. One of the things that uh, I noticed early on when I started speaking with and researching content moderation and its workers was the fact that so many of the people on the production level, kind of ground floor uh, side of this work, were often seeing conflict zones around the world take root, probably, if not before, at the same time as like the US State Department was, right? So they were privy to these uh, circumstances as they were unfolding, and they had to quickly adjust. Uh, they had to seek new information from the firms about how they were going to deal with a given situation in a part of the world. Um, so this, you know, to call it dynamic is probably an understatement. It is absolutely always in movement and in flux. Uh, not long ago, I heard a, a, a chief AI scientist from Facebook claim that Facebook had quote unquote solved content moderation. Uh, I don't know how anyone can make that claim with a straight face. It's like saying we've we've solved human nature. There there is no case in which content moderation achieves a solved state. It is always ongoing. 
Uh, it just uh, it makes me feel so despondent about human nature as I'm listening to you talk, Sarah. If you're feeling uh, compelled to say something about what we're talking about now, give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. If you're following us on uh, Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, we're at KQED Forum. Greg writes, third-party contracting has to be worse on the workers. Do we have an estimate of the total number of content moderators worldwide in the U.S.? Bottom line is you, me, and everyone who uses social media have blood on our hands. Yeah, this is a bleak uh, situation really uh, writ large. And, uh, you know, as a professor at UCLA, I'm I'm charged with, with teaching students, undergrads and graduate students about uh, about these circumstances. But as I just said to them yesterday, uh, I, I'm not advocating that we all log off or that we all throw away these uh, these platforms and tools that have become an integral part of our life for, for the simple reason that I know that's not really realistic for many people. Uh, I, I've been on the internet now coming on 30 years uh, this fall, which is really disturbing in its own right. But anyway, uh, and and so obviously, for me, I'm not in a position where I'm prepared to do that. But I do think that conversations about issues like commercial content moderation, and uh, the the way that we are all collectively passing the buck to some of the uh, most uh, poorly paid people in the world, uh, begets another conversation about our own engagement with social media. And that's a conversation we all really need to have. We're talking about the current global landscape for content moderators of social media with Sarah T. Roberts, faculty director of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry and author of Behind the Screen, Content Moderation in the Shadows of Social Media. Join our conversation. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. We'd love to hear from you about what you make of all of this. I'm Rachel Myro. You're listening to Forum. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and we're talking about the grim, grim global landscape for content moderators working for social media companies and their subcontractors. 
around the world for very little pay and often a lot of trauma. We're talking with Sarah T. Roberts, faculty director of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. And, you know, Sarah, I I don't want to get out of this conversation without mentioning that there are content moderators who take pride in their work, almost kind of like, you know, the better elements in law enforcement, protecting the larger population against some really heinous stuff. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And we ought to credit uh, so many of these people for doing work that most of us wouldn't be capable of. Uh, They really often do have a sense of the service that they are providing to the rest of us. And uh, as you can imagine, uh, for people who do this kind of work, there is a need to make sense of it. There is a need to assign value to it, even when the rest of society and their own employers are, are, are not great at doing that. And so they often reflect on the work that they do as being uh, a, a great service that they are providing. Uh, they have a sense of altruism about it often, or a sense of self-sacrifice. I think the analogy to law enforcement is not wholly uh, uh, misplaced. However, no matter how one feels about police and policing, we, we can recognize collectively that the police occupy a particular social stratum within our culture and that they are uh, they are paid and they are recognized for the work that they do and they are visible. But that is not the case for content moderators whose work is often rendered invisible, uh, intangible to others. It's poorly paid. It is often precarious work, uh, as was mentioned about the metrics. Uh, there's always a sense that that one could lose one's job very easily if performance metrics are not are not met. As one of your uh, one of your listeners commented, it it is a it is a sweatshop type of environment. This is what we might refer to as digital piecework, and so that's where the analogy to some of the kinds of uh, work that are done by others in in our social fabric falls down because these people don't receive the accolades, the, the financial and the other kinds of support that they deserve. We do have uh, a voicemail from somebody who is a content moderator uh, for Nextdoor, I believe. Why don't we hear what they have to say? I am a lead or a uh, moderator on the Nextdoor platform, which is supposedly hyperlocal you know, where you know it's mostly your neighbors, and so you know everybody who's posting on the platform you're encouraged to use. Well, actually, by the guidelines, you have to use your real name, and they used to have your actual address on the site. Um, But nonetheless, it is still just your neighborhood and your neighbors, and moderating content on Nextdoor uh, presents a a challenge because it's it's all... um, volunteers, not necessarily people who volunteered, but maybe were just bestowed with the, the, the little green leaf uh, denoting a lead or a content, um, what do they call it, uh, well, moderators. And so I, it's just, it's a different scenario with knowing who, who people are. There's still the same amount of bullying. It's just, I've had to you know, uh, report and and vote on posts from, like, our local chief of police, um, our mayor, (laughs) et cetera. It's just really interesting. I wonder if you could um, talk about how Nextdoor is a little bit different. And it's, you know, how how it works when, when, 
you're moderating content from people that you know. <laughs> Thank you. Any thoughts on that, Sarah? Yeah, that's a great example of um, some of the ways in which platforms have been experimenting with and trying other models. So what we've been talking about up until this uh, this this portion of the program is people really working uh, at scale in uh, pretty sterile call center-like environments. But there are people who do content moderation work in, in a variety of scenarios and circumstances. Some people who do the work do it on platforms like Amazon's Mechanical Turk, where it's really you know, one-to-one, -one. and it may be, as you asked earlier, kind of a side hustle or, or an extra income activity. Some people are doing it on a volunteer basis. So when we think about uh, the notion of uh, doing this work on behalf of others or having an altruistic motivation, I mean, that's the prime example of, of doing that, right? Being a community member uh, who is, uh, for whatever reason, bestowed with, uh, with the power to be a moderator in her local environment. Um, nevertheless, whether you're a volunteer, whether you're doing this work for pay, it can expose you to some of the worst types of human self-expression. And so I imagine when she was bringing up the chief of police and the mayor, it wasn't because of the great pro-social posts that they were making. It was probably because she found herself having to uh, adjudicate their material against the rules of the platform or other kinds of uh, other kinds of norms of participation on Nextdoor. And we know that Nextdoor has been in the news for a lot of unsavory reasons, being a site of uh, people enacting their their racism and and other kinds of uh, attitudes related to the neighborhoods where they live and the communities in which they live. Uh, so there are legions of people who also do this work in the same way as the caller described, where they are uh, they are perhaps working in a smaller community-based uh, sub-segment of a social media platform. We've got uh, the Reddit model, which uses volunteers in their subreddits. We've got Discord, where people can create servers and then are responsible for that frontline moderation. Uh, any number of other examples that that would be similar to that. But of course, on the other side, all of those firms also have for pay professional people who have to pick up uh, the kinds of moderation that just rises to a level of seriousness where those interventions are needed. And unfortunately, uh, on all of these platforms, there is an issue with people attempting to circulate, for example, child sexual abuse material. There are legal mandates, things that have to uh, happen when that material is found on a site. And that is when uh, the, the the employees who are hired to do professional content moderation often have to come into play, even on those sites that use volunteers. Uh, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that Kelly writes, behind the trauma to content moderators are criminal acts with victims. Can you give us a sense of the landscape around the world for efforts to find and stop individuals perpetrating the crimes and posting the content? I think that's a, a key point. Uh, and, you know, just just to kind of draw it out to its logical extent, uh, of course, people are compelled for a variety of reasons to commit heinous acts, to hurt others, to, to harm animals, to harm themselves. But the question then becomes, with the rise of social media, to what extent has there been an impetus created uh, for doing those acts where uh 
where the uh, where the draw is that they can then be shared and circulated. Whereas in the absence of the power to do that, perhaps the person might not have been as compelled to act as they were. And so the the actual existence of the platforms themselves and the power to share and their their business model, which is always to solicit new content, has to be implicated here as well. But to, to answer to the specifics of the caller's question, every major uh, service that we've discussed has a relationship with law enforcement, and these are global relationships. So, um, you know, not just with, say, uh, the, the FBI in the United States, but with Interpol or with other kinds of representatives of law enforcement around the world, so that when these incidents arise, that as the as the caller points out, are are not just harmful to the person viewing it, but obviously could depict actual harm to somebody in danger. Um, they get connected with law enforcement and they pretty much have direct lines into into those kinds of agencies. It's good to hear. You know, as as we round out this hour, I'd, I'd like to talk about efforts at reform. What can be done? What should we be doing? And and with that, I'd I'd like to invite Carl in Oakland to join us. Hi, Carl. I'm here. Hi. T- talk to us. Well, uh, I'm I'm an old guy, and uh, I've been using the internet for various and sundry purposes for uh, a couple of decades. But I know nothing about this world of social media. As a citizen, uh, uh, I have a very hard time understanding uh, today's uh, uh, speaker, except that. I can tell that this is a real problem, and I know something about international finance. And so uh, where where is a starting point for me to understand uh, the social media phenomenon? <laughs> any, any thoughts, Sarah? Well, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't recommend my own book to you, Carl, because what I try to do in that book is not only unpack the specificities of this form of labor that we're talking about right now, but also uh, to tell the story of how we got there economically uh, in terms of legislation and in uh, in with regard to the development of the tech industry over the past uh, 30 odd years. So that would be a starting point, uh, but it's not the only one where you can find information like that. Uh, but that having been said, uh, what what can we do about it, I think, is is the question that I'm hearing uh, Carl really, really posing. And I think already in the program, several great avenues of redress have come up. So just to reiterate some of those, uh, workplace organizing is top of mind with uh, with so many of of the issues that we're talking about, which are issues of labor exploitation. And so uh, there's been a there's been a tendency in the tech industry in particular to imagine uh, that the forms of labor that go on within the industry are so different and are so unique as to fall outside of uh, needing or really fitting in with models of labor organization that you know might harken back to the the early and mid 20th century in a manufacturing environment, in particular in the United States. But of course, that's not the only way that uh, organizing takes place. And we've seen movements among many tech workers over the past few years, uh, uh, coalitions across uh, tech firms, et cetera, uh, to organize their workplaces. So I think um, 
much to the uh, dismay of the uh, C-suite executives at these firms. In fact, people who are in the tech industry are absolutely the perfect people to be organizing in their workplace and to be pushing back on uh, on labor practices and other kinds of uh, workplace conditions that are not just uh, uncomfortable or unpleasant, but in some cases are actually harmful. Um, I think if we wait around for the companies to do it, it's not going to happen. As we see, each time a new firm comes onto the scene, they just repeat the same old model and it's harmful. The and second thing yeah, I would mention I, I'm just is, going to have you yeah. pause there for a moment and say thank you to Carl for that great question. Uh, and also say you're listening to Forum. And I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. Uh, so, so, Sarah, you were just saying... Uh, you know, like like the companies are not going to do it on their own. They're not right. going to do it on their own. There's too much money to be made, and there's really no regulation. And I, I feel, you know, as a, as a tech reporter, that I'm just a broken record saying, you know, yeah. uh, spot after feature after spot after feature, you know, that, that nothing is happening in Washington, D.C. Well, I think... Um, we're going to have to look beyond the borders of the United States to see action on these issues because we have a United States Congress that really is in bed with the tech industry. Last I checked, the companies that were uh, most represented by lobbyists in D.C. were Amazon and Facebook, Amazon and Meta. So the relationships there between legislators and the industry itself is certainly not one that we could describe as adversarial or or critical or likely to impose regulation on those firms that would do anything to affect the bottom line. That having been said, there are other places in the world that aren't so reticent. Uh, So we might look at what's going on in the EU or in the UK context to, um, you know, to have a shred of hope. Or we heard uh, even about in Colombia that there are movements there to get workers organized and and to uh, to unionize. Uh, so there are some regulatory rays of light, but they're not necessarily coming from within our own country. The companies, however, are global, and so they have to be responsive to um, to global regulation at this point. They can no longer just sort of um, wave the American flag and say, you know, we only listen to American uh, regulation and and uh, and law. Uh, but the other the other point that has come up and is sort of uh, one of I think one of the the goals of of this program today is is the fact that uh, there are people who are now filing lawsuits against their employers and that's another avenue of redress. I think we're hearing about a few of these suits as they go forward, but for every one of those, I can only imagine the hundreds of other lawsuits that were settled out of court and under non disclosure agreements. So that avenue is helpful in some cases for individuals and even for a class of workers to get uh, financial compensation and other kinds of support, but it doesn't seem to be moving the needle on the industry as a whole. And it's, Rachel, as you pointed out, they've got the money to spend. They'd rather just settle the lawsuit and keep on business as usual. Um, you know, I, this is a good point. Reddit did say about the lawsuit in particular, this lawsuit was brought by a single employee, not a group of moderators. Uh, but quick question, if if you did have the ear of, of regulators in, in Washington and, and they you could offer one recommendation, one rule change, one law change, uh, you know, to turn things around, what would it be? 
Oh, geez. Well, you know, it would help if we had uh, universal health care in the United States. So these <laughs> workers could could know that their uh, that their well-being would be covered not only for the time that they are working for these companies, but in perpetuity, because what's happening right now is that the companies are getting a fairly cheap, uh, uh, incredible product. So they're getting an incredible return on their investment for what they're paying for this labor. But what they're doing is kicking the can down the road to the rest of society because we don't know what the outcome will be for these workers two, five, ten years down the road as they uh, as they cycle out of content moderation work, but as the work itself still resides psychologically within them. And so that's a bill that is going to come due at some point. It would behoove regulators and legislators to think about that now, uh, but I don't have a lot of faith that they will do that. Well, Sarah, I want to give the the last word to uh, one of our commenters, Laura, who writes, I perceive that this work is as valuable and critical to our social media environments as any first responder is in the real world. While there may be less of a risk of physical harm, they are risking moral and psychological wounds on a regular basis. They deserve the same respect and compensation. We've been talking this hour about the global landscape for content moderation uh, with earlier Neem McIntyre, reporter on the big tech team for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, and for the rest of the hour, Sarah T. Roberts, faculty director of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry and author of a book you need to go read now. Behind the Screen, Content Moderation in the Shadows of Social Media. Sarah, it has been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. This Hour of Forum is produced by Caroline Smith and Grace Wan. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer, and Susan Britton is our lead producer. Our senior producer is Susan Davis. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Christopher Beale, Brendan Willard, and Jim Bennett. Our intern is Lulu Ralda. Our vice president of news is Ethan Toven Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Rachel Myro, sitting in for Mina Kim. Thank you so much for listening to Forum. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.